3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. This morning we bring you a special feature of the raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus, hosted by renegade activists last Thursday night. The webinar featured a panel discussion on what the AUKUS alliance between Australia, the UK and the US really means for Australia. Renegade activists recognises that all the actions that we take and all the issues that we cover are predicated on the fact that we're doing so on occupied land, which has never been ceded. And as such, we recognise and respect the sovereignty of the First Nations people of the land we're working on. Now, the issues that we're going to be covering tonight um, cover a lot of land, a big part of the country, in fact, all of the country, all the way up from the Larrakia people of Darwin down to the Noora people around Adelaide where the ships are going to be built, to the Wadjuk people around HMAS Stirling Base, um, of course, the Ngunnawal people around Canberra, um, and throughout the Pacific region um, with Indigenous and First Nations people all over the all over the area. Mm. Uh, my name's Jacob. I'm speaking to you sitting here on Gadigal land. You might know as Sydney. And acknowledge the generations of Indigenous warriors who have fought, lived and died for justice and dignity mm. on this land that we now call Sydney. I also want to acknowledge and recognise that speakers tonight are spread around the country from places already mentioned and also from Rundry country and Ngunnawal and Jiringan country down on the south coast, I believe, and um, we respect all the people and, of course, acknowledge that what we're, talking, what we're talking about here is about a fight which has been going on for a very long time in the various parts of Australia. Um, renegade activists, we've only been around since the 1990s and our focus has always been in organising, facilitating campaigns and actions. So while tonight is a bit of a departure from the way we normally do things, largely brought about by the pandemic and the restrictions around it, the focus remains the same. It was never our style to sit around meeting rooms and talk to each other and um, we see no reason why cyber meeting rooms would be any different. The purpose of tonight is twofold. First of all, to talk about the issues, you know, from renegade activists and our friends um, concerned with orcas, primarily the submarines, because that's what we know about at this stage, but we'll also touch on other issues. But also, we'll, at the end of the night, we'll be bringing in um, breakout rooms. And the idea is for people to get in, talk to each other. We'll have encrypted rise-up pads ready to go for people to make notes, send each other the details. And people should be aware that the main room that we're in now is being recorded, but when we break into breakout rooms, that won't be recorded, or at least not by us. 
and we don't know what other people might be doing, um, the, the spooks and so on. So use your normal common sensibility. We're pleased to see there are other things happening. We're by no means the only thing happening, of course, in response to this AUKUS thing. There's a, another webinar happening tomorrow that IPAN is hosting, and no doubt in the meeting in the breakout rooms afterwards you'll be able to get the link for that. And I also note that from IPAN to ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nukes, um, is hosting a hookup on Tuesday night, and you can get those details from ICANW.org.au. We're going to continue organising as we always do, and hopefully you've all added your email and or phone number to the booking sheet. If not, let us know how we can get in touch with you if you want to be got in touch with. For now, as we're working out ways to work around and with and about and up and down the pandemic restrictions and the pandemic itself, I can let you know that so far we've organised, we've called together another meeting on the, um, the 4th of November, another one of these Zoom meetings. And so far we've got Dave Brophy, who I think is here tonight. He's a China expert. I'll be speaking on issues other than submarines, mainly troops and weapons and that kind of thing, and different areas of concern. In the meantime, Renegade Activists work closely with 3CR Community Radical Radio in Melbourne, but live streaming and podcasts are available for a Friday rave, which is me, and um, Uprise Radio, which is James and Jackson and Mercedes, and you can get those through the Renegade Activists Action Force website, which is renegadeactivists.org. Okay, our time is limited, but we want to make the most of it. While we don't have the sort of opportunities we normally have, nicking out across the road to the pub or a cafe afterwards, we are going to hope that the breakout rooms provide something of that opportunity. We'll be hearing from Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Dimity Hawkins, Dave Sweeney, Tale Mangione and Scott Ludlam. Now, Felicity Ruby has had some technical bend with difficulties and so won't be joining us in a speaking capacity, but is here and um, will be in the make-up, not war, breakout rooms. And I'll also be commenting on a few issues um, in, between the, in between the speakers. Then we'll come back for brief report back. But for now, I've got to say, we've got a surprise guest speaker. Someone's told me they've been waiting in the waiting room for 12 minutes. I don't know what's happening. But um, we've got a surprise guest speaker tonight, and that guest speaker is writer at large for Crikey, associate editor of Arena magazine, producer of TV shows, author of numerous books. If I listed all his accolades, we'll be here all night. Um, Guy Rundle. And Guy, um, can you tell us which breakout room to start with you'll be in at the end of the evening? Do you know that, just so people can join you? I have no idea. All right, I'll, I'll be able to find that out while you're Someone. speaking, and I'll let people know at the, at 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 the I'll let people know at the end of it. And Apologies. how awkward is AUKUS, and why are we all squawking about it, Guy? All right, so I'm going to give a. I'm told I've got five minutes. Uh, I'm going to give an overview, which is by no means uh, from deep expertise. It's just it's just been uh, from following it uh, for the past few weeks. So I'm just going to do it in. Uh, dot points, and uh, I'm happy to be corrected um, by the numerous experts who will also be in this room. So AUKUS is the Australia-Britain-United States Agreement uh, on a whole bunch of things. It's announced on the 15th of September. 
and it commits the three countries to joint activity uh, on high-tech warfare and defence using uh, naval warfare, quantum technologies, cyber military, robotics and autonomous weapons. Those were the things mentioned in the press release, which is all we really have of AUKUS at the moment. The most publicised part of this has been the alleged the building of eight nuclear submarines for Australia, sharing US nuclear technology and necessitating full nuclear facilities in Australian ports. Clinton's going to talk about that in uh, detail. But delivery of these subs, if they happen at all, is decades away. So the AUKUS deal is a major shift in global alliances, but it's as much about a shift in the rhetoric of power as the reality of power, I, I, I would argue. Previous and current alliances in a post-colonial world have sought some sort of regional justification, whether it's legitimate or not, and as being based around the Pacific or the new current parallel quad arrangements of Australia, the US, India and Japan as a sort of mega region. AUKUS is an unashamed return to notions of global control by three nations allied on the basis of a shared cultural and historical background and the presumption that that creates a stronger union and that that union is somehow legitimate across the whole face of the world. The prompt for such an alliance has come from the United States uh, and represents the second part of a pivot to Asia strategy, which was inaugurated by uh, Barack Obama. The pivot to Asia is overwhelmingly about the notion that China will be the US's great global competitor, rival and adversary in the decades to come. That will determine the shape of the world. And really, the TPP trade deal was the first and failed attempt uh, to, to um, create this pivot to Asia, TPP always being about uh, geopolitical concerns rather than trade itself. The rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan that we just saw was the prelude to the second stage, which was why it was, which was why nobody really cared that it was such a shambles. Uh, and, you know, AUKUS is now the lead, the leading element of this new pivot to Asia. So the US and its allies and its uh, train of sycophants in the media claim that, that AUKUS and other things are a response to a, a new and aggressive expansionist policy by China. Um, China, in turn, claims that it is simply returning to a full presence in the world after decades in which it was turned inwards and which it had um, deliberately minimised its, its global sort of footprint. But it also claims that its specific moves uh, are in, in the South China Sea and elsewhere are in response to US attempts to encircle it, to engage its regional rivals in an alliance against it, uh, and, uh, and to delegitimate its own claims within the region. So at the moment, much of this turns on the question of the uh, South China Sea, which uh, China made a substantial claim on in the 1930s before, uh, before the communist takeover in 1949. Uh, and so we have a situation where both China and Taiwan draw on that 1930s claim to, to argue for a large section of the South China Sea. Um, which is, uh, you know, in contravention of the law of the sea uh, as it currently stands. The crucial part of the, the rhetoric 
in states like Australia and the UK that gains public support for the idea that this is something more than a regional um, dispute between China and its its neighbours, it seems to me, is the implicit exceptionalist claims of the US uh, that all other nations must restrain themselves and stick to their regional spheres, while the US claims the world as its uh, as its global and regional sphere at the same time and its legitimate uh, extension of operation, uh, and that obviously draws not simply on its on its accumulated military power, it also draws on the ideology of its exceptionalism as a representation of, you know, human, uh, uh, the true picture of what human, the human future is, the, the last best hope of humanity, as it were. So, so this puts us in a situation where China is accused of expansion, uh, for breaking the law of the sea. The US refuses to sign the law of the sea. Um, so, so the legitimation is, 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 based overwhelmingly on whiteness, global whiteness. The US and the and Australia and the UK uh, are unified by that, and it's that is an extraordinary sort of move in our era that they would so unashamedly put that back together uh, and, and abandon any pretense, pretense of colonial things. What it does chiefly um, in, in our terms is it draws us into a US command structure in which there's no place for Australia to have both a dual dialogue with China and other nations uh, about its uh, its defence, even while it's in a defence alliance with the US, but it also creates a command structure in which we have no initiative to exit uh, should there come to uh, a situation of tension. And that's what we've really got to focus on, it seems to me, in a campaign against it. I think there's large support for the U.S. alliance in Australia, but as the Iraq War and and uh, the Vietnam War showed, there's much less support for its adventures and the actual ramifications of that. So, so AUKUS is soft, and and we can target it that way. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you, Guy. And um, just had a look, and Guy's apparently going to be in the. Um, Make Art Not War breakout room. Am I? Oh, okay. Yep. So we'll see you there, Guy. And um, now, Clinton, are you there, Clinton? I think Clinton's dropped off. So we're going to go to Dimity Hawkins. No, hang on, I'm here. Oh, he's there. He's there. Clinton. Clinton is there. Now, here's our next guest, former intelligence officer, professor of international and political studies from the University of New South Wales. Um, I think of Clinton as the outsider's insider. The perspective and knowledge he brings to the discussion lays bare the thinking that the military and strategic policy wonks um, are using when they make decisions um, like the ones they're currently making. Recent books, including What Uncle Sam Really Wants and Island Off the Coast of Asia, are what I would call compulsory reading for people wanting to understand the geopolitics of the AUKUS issue. Um, Clinton, welcome to a Renegade Activists um, Forum. I know you've been on the show with me and with James and Mercedes, but this is an actual Renegade Activists one. Um, With the COP26 talks kicking off in Glasgow later this month, um, I guess doesn't global warming and um, 
sea level rise count for a, an imperative for Australia to develop oh. its underwater capabilities? What's the Andy Caucusing? Clinton. Uh, thank you. A version of what I'm about to say is already on the website of arena.org.au. I'll begin with the politics of the SPECT, known as AUKUS. Uh, the Prime Minister announced it as a forever partnership. He used that phrase ten times uh, in the one press conference. <clears throat> uh, the announcement has had an effect <clears throat> at the political level. Uh, an opinion poll soon after found that 57% of the public approve of the pact. Uh, 90% of Liberal National Party voters approve, but Labour voters are split. 53% disapprove, 47% approve which means that the government now has the national security wedge against the opposition. And the looming election will not just be about the response to the pandemic or the bushfires, but about which side can be trusted on national security. Uh, public support for, for the PAC shouldn't come as any surprise, because opinion polls have, strong, have long shown uh, strong support for the alliance with the United States. Uh, and these opinion polls cannot be dismissed as aberrations. Uh, if there is to be a credible uh, anti-war uh, movement. It has to be based uh, on what the public regards as reasonable. To that end, I want to say that submarines, conventional submarines, uh, constitute a rare and vital capability uh, for a maritime nation like Australia. Uh, they raise the costs for any adversary contemplating hostile action. Anti-submarine warfare, uh, at which Australia is also adept, requires costly cutting-edge capabilities uh, and is one of the most complex warfare disciplines to master. Submarines are expensive, but the cost to an adversary uh, of countering them is much more expensive. Submarines give Australia a strategic weight that no other defence force asset or combination of assets has. If we are to call for an independent Australian foreign policy and, and a military that is armed but neutral, that focuses on defence, not offence, then that military and those calls must presume possession of capabilities such as submarine warfare and anti-submarine warfare. The capabilities cannot be turned on quickly. They require years of investment in personnel and equipment. And so for that reason, even if down the road it is possible to adopt a policy of armed independence, submarines and anti-submarine warfare assets will be a critical part of it. But I want to distinguish conventional submarines, which are relevant for the defense of Australia, from nuclear-powered submarines, which are not. Nuclear-powered submarines give you a range uh, and, and a submersion and a, and, and a speed, which allows them to operate far from home, uh, in particular for our, in our context in the waters of the South China Sea. And uh, some of the submarines that are being discussed, the Virginia-class submarine, for example, have at least 35 Tomahawk missile uh, uh, firing points in, their, uh, in, the, in, the, in the midsection. Uh, they allow you to overwhelm uh, an enemy's land defenses. So these submarines, uh, if we're getting Virginia class, are not submarines to collect intelligence. They are not uh, to, to, to hunt other submarines or to destroy enemy shipping. They are there to attack another country's coastal defenses. They are offensive. What exactly is the purpose of all this, however? Uh, and here I want to uh, uh, draw your attention to a TV show, a comedy called Utopia. Uh, in this show, there is a satirical point about defense policy saying, well, we are, we are defending our trade from China, but China is a major trading partner. And so how can we be protecting our trade with China from China? The whole thing is absurd. Well, that clip has been widely circulated and perhaps uh, you know, even funny, but it's utterly misinformed. Australian strategic planners already know that it's absurd to protect trade with China from China. That's not what they're trying to do. 
in the real world, what they are trying to do is, is insist that military and intelligence activities can be conducted in another country's exclusive economic zone. Exclusive economic zones were established in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea uh, in 1982. The United States is the only maritime power not to recognize, not to, not to ratify uh, the Law of the Sea Convention, but it does act in accordance with it anyway. Uh, it refers to uh, the exclusive economic zones refer to waters that extend 200 nautical miles from a country's shore. The United States says that it has the right to conduct military and intelligence collection activities within any country's exclusive economic zone and can do so as close as, as 12 nautical miles from the coast. And it also accepts the right of other countries to do this inside its own exclusive economic zone. During the Cold War, the United States did not interfere with Soviet ships, bombers, or surveillance aircraft that came in close to its airspace. China says that it respects freedom of navigation, but it doesn't respect the right of foreign governments to conduct military and intelligence collective activities. So this is the key question. Should, uh, uh, does a, a, a country have the right to conduct military activities in another country's exclusive economic zone? In fact, if you look at Indonesia, the Philippines, and India, consider their geographies, their shape, and where they are in relation to the ocean, they all agree with China's version, uh, China's concept of the EZ. Very recently, in April this year, India protested strongly when the United States uh, uh, conducted its own freedom of navigation operations inside India's exclusive economic zone. Uh, Article 301 of the Law of the Sea Convention is called Peaceful Use of the Sea, and it states that uh, the threat or use of force cannot be used uh, in, uh, inconsistent with the principles of international law in the United Nations Charter. The United States knows that if China's concept of exclusive economic zone rights, namely no foreign uh, military activities in its zone, if that concept were to be widely accepted around the world, the United States would not just lose the ability to project force in China, near China. It would lose the ability to project force in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf, in the Red Sea. And that would uh, uh, mean that we'd have to conduct operations from 200 miles offshore. That reduces the power and the reach of U.S. intimidatory force. That is why uh, the tensions in the South China Sea over the exclusive economic zone are going on. It has nothing to do with freedom of navigation. It is about whether military activities can be conducted near another country's shore. This is surely uh, a situation that calls for international diplomacy rather than threats of force, uh, the deployment of, of armadas uh, and so on into another country's zone. This question is important and must be asked not only inside parliament but on the streets. What is the purpose uh, of these freedom of navigation operations? Are we doing it in order to protect shipping? And the answer to that is no. Or are we doing it to protect the United States' ability to project force anywhere around the world? 30% of the uh, of the world's oceans are actually e exclusive economic zones of other countries. That is what is at stake here. Um, the, there are other other aspects about the deal, uh, and that is that uh, um, the, the, the policy planners in Australia know that it is a dangerous situation. That is not their concern. They already know that this is, a, uh, this is going to be dangerous. Their biggest concern is that some other country in the region might be more relevant and more effective uh, and more reliable for the United States, and the United States would protect, would choose it over Australia. Speaking truth to power, to tell the people in power that this is what you're doing is dangerous, is useless. They already know this. Policy planners do not need a lesson in that. Uh, what they have to be forced to answer, however, is are we, in fact, protecting the United States' ability to project power globally? 
rather than shipping on the defense of Australia. Thank you very much. Thank you, Clinton. That's, and that's a very important thing to, to take on board. Um, now, at this juncture, we're running a little bit behind time, but I'm going to stick just a, a minute in to point out that both Guy and Clinton and um, Felicity, who was going to join us tonight, and indeed Scott and myself, and Scott will be joining us later, have written heaps about a related issue. Um, and that's the issue of a bloke who comes from one of the Yorkist countries and is currently in prison in another, while the third seeks his extradition. And indeed, if um, recent stories are true, have sought in the past his death. The US government's appeal against the British court's decision not to allow Julian Assange to be extradited begins on the 27th of this month. And I think anybody concerned with AUKUS could do a lot worse as a first step, if they haven't already, to throw some love and support behind the campaign for his release. While we're concentrating on the submarine aspect of AUKUS this evening, because that's mainly what we have information on, um, AUKUS covers a range of strategic issues, as um, Clinton and Guy have both pointed out. A few days after AUKUS was announced, the heads of every Australian spy agency with the Prime Minister were summoned to a meeting in, um, in Langley. And the initial AUKUS announcement um, also specifically mentioned intelligence and cyber warfare. And as more information comes to light about the sham case against Assange, um, we'll be posting it up on Renegade Activist's website and incorporating it into our some of the future AUKUS activities. Um, we've seen that the collateral murder video, while it's the uh, main point of the indictment, the real impetus behind his persecution over the last couple of years was the release of the CIA cyber warfare tech mix of WikiLeaks Vault 7. So as I say, we're going to update the website with the sun stuff over the next few days and then um, we'll keep you posted. But it's important to recognise that it's the same three countries. But moving right along, Timothy Hawkins has been sitting there um, while, I've been, um, while I've been talking about that. Timothy's an Australian activist, researcher, advocate for a world free from nuclear weapons. Her research and activism um, are centred on the history of nuclear weapons testing, nuclear chain issues, and the to utterly eliminate nuclear weapons, I dare say. Timothy is a PhD candidate at Swinburne University, and while she was a co-founder of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, I can, that I mentioned earlier, um, as ever, at Renegade Gigs, she's not speaking with uh, anyone else's hat on but her own. And, um, Dimity, welcome back to a Renegade Activists Forum. Thanks, mate. Thank you very um, much. It was a long time ago that you and the uh, Renegade Activists first spoke about abolishing nuclear weapons, and I must say that a lot of my... Oh, optimism has been worn down and polished over the intervening quarter of a century or more. But tell me, how do you see AUKUS as impacting on that larger campaign? Well, it has a lot of impacts, Jacob, um, as we will get into, no doubt, and as we have already gotten into. But first I wanted to acknowledge that I'm speaking tonight from Nam on the lands of the Wandri people and pay my respects to the elders of this place, both past and present. And just note again that since the time of the first invasion in 1788, this nation has been beholden to militarism by foreign powers. And tonight's topic is just further evidence of a new wave. Um, as Guy and Clinton have already pointed out, of course, the nuclear-powered attack subs are just one of the few parts of the recently announced um, AUKUS agreement that we have any details on. 
And even then, those details are fleeting and opaque at best. There's been lots of talk in the last couple of weeks about Trojan horses, a foot in the door, the thin edge of the wedge, and I agree that nuke subs could be any or all of these. The larger issues here, and I think this is in line with what Clinton was just saying, are the ways in which this aggressive announcement of nuclear submarines play into the hands and agendas of nuclear-armed nations. Richard Tanter has reminded us that there are three groupings of nuclear-armed states now, of, of nuclear states, um, relating to nuclear states now. There's the nuclear-possessing states, of which there are nine. There are nuclear-supporting or umbrella states, such as Australia, NATO, uh, Japan and South Korea, which make up about 30 states. And now there are the nuclear ban states, which means those 56 who have now ratified or 86 who have signed so far to the nuclear ban. The proposal to nuclearize Australian military submarines leads Australia down a path that ties us much further into a forever partnership with nuclear possessor states who will run our military, including with nuclear-powered subs using highly enriched uranium. So is this interoperability or intractability? President Biden is carrying on the legacy of nuclear possession. Current estimates say his finger hovers over the button of an arsenal of around 1,800 deployed nuclear weapons today. Many of them are on high-trigger alert, ready to be launched within minutes. And the UK are no princes of peace in this either. The UK have currently deployed a further 120 nuclear weapons. Between them, including those not currently deployed, these two countries alone possess around 5,745 nuclear weapons. Despite this, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or the TPNW, came into force in January of this year. The current Australian government does not support this treaty. With a sustained adherence to the concept of Australian security being tied to US nuclear weapons capabilities through extended nuclear deterrence, along with our hosting of certain US facilities, the Australian government has been in a de facto nuclear alliance in ways for decades. But through strong advocacy, resistance and sheer determination, the push for a nuclear-capable military and associated nuclear industries has been held back for decades too. We have seen nuclear plans fall in the face of broad community opposition time and again. We will be seeing Australian nuclear resistance again now, front and centre, working against this new version of nuclear colonialism. On the day that the nuclear subs were announced, Prime Minister Morrison was quick to claim Australia is not seeking to establish nuclear weapons or establish a civil nuclear capability but he was just as quick to shy away from signing the TPNW. The treaty completely prohibits nuclear weapons, including having them stationed, deployed from, or installed on territory of states' parties. The treaty also bans nations from assisting, encouraging, or inducing anyone to engage in any activities that support the possession or use or threat of use of nuclear weapons. In our region, we have many states who have joined the TPNW. Those include 10 of the Pacific Island Forum states. Nine ASEAN states are either parties to the treaty or have, already, or have signed so far. There are many looking again at how the AUKUS nuke subs will contravene or impact on a range of international laws, such as Clinton pointed out with the um, law of the sea. But there's also those that have signed up to the TPNW the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty, and also, of course, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. For many here in the Pacific, though, it is hard to avoid the obvious that these are the same players, the US, UK and France, 
that conducted hundreds of nuclear tests across our region last century. They are now claiming to protect our peace and our security. This region is, has identified over and again that our greatest security threat is climate change. Further nuclear risk to the Blue Pacific, whether through nuclear accidents, targeting, waste or war fighting, are unwanted and unnecessary. We do not need to nuclearize Australia's military submarines. We do not need to encourage, enable or bind our security to nuclear weapons. We do not have to continue the nuclear colonialism that we have seen and felt for so much of the last century. We can and should be de-escalating nuclear war fighting plans, seeking nuclear justice for past harms and saving humanity from future nuclear threats. We can and should be joining the nuclear ban treaty. We can and we will continue to work for a nuclear-free Australia within a nuclear-free Pacific. So that's my piece. Thank you. Thank you, Dimity. Thank you, Dimity. And always, um, always good to hear from, hear, hear from you, mate. Um, and when we're talking about weapons, it's not just nuclear weapons, of course. AUKUS opens a whole can of worms to a proliferation of all kinds of armaments. And um, already we're seeing Australian companies lining up to cash in on the arms industry bonanza and also the minerals bonanza. Um, the Australian government has made its intentions clear just last Friday with a cabinet reshuffle that puts science and technology firmly in the defence industry portfolio. When I say weapons even, I'm not just talking about weapons or what you'd normally think of as such. Another aspect of AUKUS is the talk of supply chain guarantees, particularly for mineral resources. Dave Sweeney has been active in the uranium mining and nuclear debate for two decades through his work with the media, trade unions and environment groups on mining resources and Indigenous issues. He works as a national nuclear campaigner for the ACF and holds a vision of a nuclear-free Australia that is positive about its future and honest about its past. Dave, welcome to the Raucous Caucus. Thanks very much, Jacob. Good to be here. And tell us, you know, while the AUKUS leadership have been repeating a mantra that it's only about nuclear-powered subs and it won't go any further, it seems to me, and I dare say most of us, that this may well precipitate an overall expansion of Australia's role well, in the nuclear one of our industry. What do you reckon? Concerns, um, and that's what I'd like to touch on tonight. I'm also talking to you tonight, folks, from uh, from Wurundjeri land in, in Melbourne, unceded land in Melbourne, and um, very pleased to be with you tonight. When AUKUS was announced, shortly after AUKUS was announced, the, uh, the Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Michael Noonan, circulated a video comment to the ADF, in particular to the RAN. And in it he spoke and he said that, that AUKUS will shape the direction of our Navy forevermore and will no doubt change the shape of our nation. Now, the concern from an environmental and ecological perspective is that the, the change in that shape of our nation is one that we don't want and is one that is unhelpful. Um, and as you've mentioned, Jacob, our concern is that AUKUS is a stepping stone uh, to a domestic nuclear industry. We're concerned about the Trojan horse dimensions of the AUKUS plan and what better vessel to introduce an idea under the radar than a submarine. There are three key areas of concern that I want to touch on tonight, um, and that's apart from the myriad of other areas of concern that other speakers will discuss about security aspects, sovereignty, international reputation and others. But I want to talk about pressures 
for an increase in domestic nuclear power, an increased pressure and expectation that Australia hosts radioactive waste, and the environmental impacts of nuclear submarines on our oceans, our ports, our coastal waters, our ports and port communities and public health. Now, for many of you, it's no surprise to see the domestic nuclear power argument come around. It's like a, a fast returning comet. It comes around, it shines bright, it disappears, and then it comes back. Like some of you will recall a dozen years ago, John Howard and Siggy Swakowski talking about the need for 20 reactors by 2050. Uh, in the middle of last decade, there was a Royal Commission in South Australia into expanding the nuclear industry since 2018. There has been a press by conservative political forces, Keith Pitt in Canberra, Mark Latham in New South Wales and the Liberal Democrats in Victoria that's seen parliamentary inquiries into repealing state and federal prohibitions on nuclear technology in Australia. So there's nothing new here, and these have on economic grounds, social licence grounds, and many other ways been batted out of court each time it's come up. But there is an extra level of reanimation and swagger about pro-nuclear uh, advocates since the AUKUS announcement. We've seen Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce and other federal politicians out. We've seen the Mineral Council of Australia talking up small modular reactors. It doesn't matter that they don't exist in the real world. Apparently, they're the saviour, and the MCA is spending a lot of money and time spruiking that. We've seen polls in the Australian saying that support grows for nuclear power, even though the number of respondents that responded for a position of for or against the majority were against. So if you put that body of momentum together with the forthcoming climate conference of parties, which starts in Glasgow on November the 1st, you can see that AUKUS is fueling a push for domestic civil nuclear power and nuclear industry. So we're concerned, environment groups and others, that a pathway to nuclear-powered subs could become a river of public cash for nuclear subsidies. We're also concerned about what this means for radioactive waste. Currently, some of you will be aware of this, some not, but currently the federal government is looking to locate Australia's first dedicated national radioactive waste facility near a town called Kimber, west of Wyala, in regional South Australia. Now, it's a highly politicised and deeply flawed plan. It's opposed by many in the, in the local community, especially grain growers, grain producers in the Eyre Peninsula and the Bungala traditional owners. And the Bungala Aboriginal people were explicitly excluded from a community ballot that was meant to measure community sentiment about this waste proposal. Um, the Bungala were also had the indignity uh, of being explicitly attempted to have any right for procedural review or legal challenge to the site removed from the enabling legislation by Minister Keith Pitt, the minister who today wants to open public cash to coal industry. So the Kimber proposal is contested. The issue is set to grow over the coming months. And I'd ask you, this is a gathering of really informed, influential, significant people, connected people who make a difference in this country. I'd ask you to keep your eyes and ears open for this one because assistance will be needed as this goes on. But many of us are concerned, Jacob, that this AUKUS push will could see the Kimber proposal more from a suboptimal waste management plan to a submarine waste 
facility. Now, it's important in order to keep going to always find something positive in a situation. One positive is that people are talking about this, not rolling over, talking about this, and talking about the wider nuclear industry. Another positive, and it's an important one, is that AUKUS shows that sovereign risk cannot ever be used credibly again by any Australian politician who wants to justify ecologically destructive behaviour. Australia has just torn up a $90 billion contract at the highest level of security. And we get, we hear environmentalists time and time again, oh, not possible, sovereign risk, sends the wrong signals, compensation claims, well, that's out the window. And that's one positive of this very not positive thing. The third area of concern I want to flag tonight is to capture or just touch on some of the many unknowns of AUKUS without getting too rumsfeld about it all. But there are many things that we do not know. Along with waste management and nuclear stewardship, as it's called, we don't know the extent of the impacts around planning, emergency and incident response capacity, public and environmental health impacts that this plan poses to our seas, our waters and our people. Um, nuclear subs sink. Nuclear subs have accidents. They catch fire. Nine have sunk and not in combat. And nuclear subs have limited containment and safety mechanisms compared to terrestrial ones. And we're well aware that terrestrial ones have proven risky and unreliable. And nautical ones are far less in their capacity. Look, tonight I'm very conscious we're pressed for time. So I'll hold it to those three points of Trojan horse for a domestic nuclear industry, increased pressure to host radioactive waste, and a plethora of increasing and unnecessary and very real, not quantified, risks that this poses to our people and in our environment. I look forward to in the breakout room. The breakout room I'm in is stopping a Trojan horse becoming, um, or nuclear subs becoming nuclear subsidies. I'm keen to discuss what we can do to stop a very disturbing and dangerous expansion in that breakout session for any who care to join. Um, and I just want to close, Jacob, by thanking everyone here tonight for attendance and attention, and also the organisers of this, RAF, for the initiative and the opportunity for events. It's a really profound, uh, it's a profound escalation. People are very true when they say it might take a lot of time, but it might take a lot of time to roll out the absolute worst, but a journey starts with a direction. And if we choose to go down road orcas, it's not the road that this country needs to go, wants to go, or the world needs, or that we, as citizens, not clients or customers, citizens of this nation, want to be part of. Thanks. Thank you, Dave. Wrapped it up so well as ever, brother. Thanks again. Yeah, we are running a bit um, short of time, but um, that's the nature of these things. And hopefully AUKUS falls even further behind time than we do. But our next speaker... Talay Mangione is currently a PhD candidate at the School of Culture, History and Language. Um, she was born and raised on Gadigal land. The Eura Nation is a Fijian and Italian descent. Her current scholarship aims to chart the nuclear-free and independent Pacific um, movement across Oceania and through historical ethnography, weaving archival records, material objects with oral histories of activists and artists. Um, explores these through filmmaking and transdisciplinary practice with um, a specific interest in 
speculative documentaries. And today, welcome for the first time to a Renegade Activists event. I, um, a lot of your work is centred around Pacific people's voices. Um, what's your understanding of the reaction to AUKUS um, from the people of the Pacific? Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for having me and thanks for yeah, inviting me to this session. Really honoured to be here. Um, yeah, I think it's deeply unsettling for a lot of Pacific people based on their history. Um, and before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm currently living and working on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri people here in Canberra. Um, so today I'm speaking with you as a Pacific Studies educator in Australia and a member of Young Solwara Pacific, a regional movement comprised of a constellation of activists from the Pacific that stand for a nuclear-free and independent Pacific. As a woman of Fijian heritage who grew up in Sydney, I'm quite well acquainted with how Australia and big powers like the UK and US of AUKUS views the Pacific in a historical and contemporary sense. Our ocean, which accounts actually for one-third of the world's surface area, is viewed through a white colonial gaze that perpetuates a false narrative. Our Pacific region is constantly belittled, viewed as empty, void and just a crossing point between several big important land masses and yet conveniently nearly all colonial powers from the late 19th century rushed to plant their flags on our islands and claim them as their own. For centuries indigenous populations and islands have been seen as tiny, insignificant and on the margins of global affairs, geopolitics and international relations but as the nuclear history of the Pacific demonstrates we are on the front line and centre of all these things. Most Australians have no idea that the Indigenous land of this country and our Pacific neighbours have been sacrifice zones for the interests of nuclear colonialism. 318 atmospheric and underground nuclear tests took place of what is currently known as the Marshall Islands, Australia, Kiribati and French Polynesia, when there were territories or colonies of the powers um, of America, the UK, Australia and France respectively. The fallout didn't just conveniently end at the end of the state border drawn in the ocean. Nuclear fallout was transboundary harm and impacted many countries across the Pacific. What's more is that the Pacific has historically been a site of many instances of improper nuclear waste dumping, nuclear storage and nuclear power gone wrong, like in the case of Fukushima. In addition, United States military bases and port facilities are likely to store these weapons with their vessels carrying them with this um, neither confirm or deny policy. AUKUS and these nuclear submarines that Australia plans to build are just another extension of this nuclear architecture in the Pacific, which is a world that has actively resisted and protested it for decades. The first step to building solidarity with um, Pacific peoples is education of everyday Australians about their place within the region and how we are vastly out of step with the needs and wants of Pacific peoples. How are most of the deaths at DFAT nowadays dedicated to the Pacific Islands? Um, and I'm wondering if they know the names of Mururua, Fangataufa, Bikini, Kiramati, Johnston, Emufield, Maralinga and Montebello. As a young person growing up in Australia, you're rarely taught anything about the Pacific within our school system, besides maybe a Kokoda track story bound out in all types of Anzac mythology. And we see ourselves as completely divorced from the Pacific region, um, with no sense of our former colonial past with territories like New Guinea and Nauru, um, to just generally widespread and ec continuing economic imperialism. Instead, it's framed as either a holiday retreat or a place with corrupt, unstable, aid-dependent or hungry governments. Um, only very recently and very suddenly has Scott Morrison attempted a diplomatic step up in the region. And this is a very transparent move to counter China with America. 
Now he's calling islanders his specific family of Ovalle, as you say, in Fijian, while at the same time agreeing to this military submarine pact without any consent of Pacific leaders. And in my opinion, as a um, Pacific person living in Australia, Australia's historically flippant approach, plus their neocolonial policy decisions like AUKUS, is not family behaviour. Family in this instance means knowing, valuing and learning about Pacific people's cultural diversity, their history, their relationships and stemming political dynamics here. There's potential for true kinship and solidarity um, on an equal playing field instead of unequal paternalistic big brother and little brother scenarios. Um, I think Australians should learn that the Pacific time and time again has stood up for a nuclear-free and independent Pacific from the grassroots to governmental levels for over four decades. Australia should listen to our Pacific leaders like Prime Minister Taneti Ma'amau of Kiribati, who recently said the AUKUS nuclear, nuclear submarine deal puts the Pacific at risk, or Reverend James Bagwan from the Pacific Conference of Churches, who said AUKUS strikes at the heart of Pacific regionalism. AUKUS puts a target on the backs of my family and friends in the islands, and I think nuclear submarines are not a peaceful solution to anything. So a key priority for issues of our region are definitely climate change and COVID-19. We need to recenter these. I think we can all agree here that this is where Australian tax dollars need to go, not to a new Cold War. And, yeah, on behalf of Young Sawara Pacific, we call for nuclear ways. I'm just going to show my shirt. Not old nuclear ways. So, yeah, that's my piece. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Talay. And new clear ways, and it's great to have the new clear thinking rather than the old nuclear at all cost scenario that we've been getting used to, unfortunately, um, through the, in this country. Now, final speaker is a former Australian politician, a member of the Australian Greens. He served in the Australian Senate from July 08 to July 17. Nine years, was it that long? and as a Deputy Leader of the Australian Greens from 15 to 17. He's also worked as a filmmaker, artist, graphic designer, and it's not listed here in his bio, but I'm going to add garlic grower. Um, his most recent book, Full Circle, published um, this year, is his, um, well, it's not his most recent book, it's his first book, that makes it his more recent. Scott Ludlam, welcome to our little renegade corner of cyberspace for the evening. Thanks, heaps, Jacob. It's not so little. Ten days' notice, there appear to be 200 people here. Yeah, Scott, reading your book, Full Circle, um, what I saw as one of the central narratives of the book was, let's call it the backbone of the book, you know, is a backbone of hope amongst all the carnage that we find ourselves in the strange world we're living in. The AUKUS announcement um, last month knocked a few of us for six, I've got to say. Where do you find the hope in the face of it all, man? Well... I I feel I think I'm the last of the the speakers before we run out to the breakout group. So I feel like I've got the best job of all. This the announcement's a disaster. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's a catastrophe. But the reason it gives me hope is that it opens up a bunch of opportunities for us. I don't know that we could have put 200 really motivated and interested people together on a call about militarism and the nuclearization of our region. Without and so I think this is actually a really big opportunity for us. Um, I want to run through a couple of reasons why I think that. 
and then just to really kick a conversation off that we can take into the breakouts. So the first one is this. I don't think this is a government, right, that none of us would trust to fold laundry unsupervised, and they've taken on one of the most complex and difficult procurement projects that any government can take on. This is going to cost people their careers. It's an absolutely unforgiving technology, and it's going to give us so many opportunities for campaigning because it's going to be a debacle. I don't see how it can be anything else. The main opportunity I think it presents us with is the opportunity to refresh and to rebuild the peace movement and to set it on a new course. I think there are probably folk on this call who weren't even alive when the invasion of Iraq happened. And that fresh energy is going to meet the remarkable wisdom that we've heard from many of the speakers um, tonight and from the other movement elders who are on this call, people with enormous history and recall of where this movement has been, um, people who fought for comprehensive test ban treaty and won, uh, people who fought through the late Cold War and saw steep reductions in nuclear weapons. Um, we lost one of our elders in the last week, and I just want to acknowledge how much we're going to miss Paul Barrett um, in, this, in this fight that's upon us now. So we have to, um, I think, the, the challenge that's upon us at the moment is, and where the magic is, is going to be, is when that wisdom meets the fresh energy of folk who are going to be drawn into this movement by being freaked out by the absolute lunacy of this announcement. That's where the magic's going to be. There probably will be growing pains, but I reckon they're going to be a lot kinder and more interesting than shrinking pains. Um, so if you're new to the work, then welcome to the Movement Cascade, where every domino that we push over has a chance of taking a few more with it. And that's what I think is going to be really interesting about the next couple of months. The opportunity that we've got is that we've got some very strange allies for the time being, maybe not for the broader anti-militarism project, but at least on the subject of this deranged nuclear submarines decision. We've got Paul Keating, Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull singing Kumbaya around the fire with us. We've got people like Hugh White, um, folk at Aspie, and people in pretty conservative corners of defence and foreign policy with quite big megaphones who were scratching their heads, looking at the direct costs, looking at the diplomatic carnage that this thing has created, and arguing that there's, there's I don't think there's any need for us to feel as though we're arguing from some sort of extreme. I just don't think we are. On the 28th of last month, so what would that have been, like a week or 10 days after the announcement, the essential... Uh, put a poll into the field that found, I'm just going to add this polling figure to the, to the numbers that Clinton read in for us before, that 50 specialists or whatever, 55% of ordinary Australians reckon the AUKUS announcement and the submarines either won't make us more secure, i.e. there'll be no difference to our material security, or it's going to make us less secure. So there's a, there's a big wedge of the Australian public a narrow majority who think this either doesn't affect security at all or it makes us less safe. That's a huge ground on which to build a movement. So I think what we're going to be doing is strengthening, and we've heard this tonight um, from folk like Dimity and, and Dave, that this will help us strengthen the deep and abiding relationship between the peace movement and the anti-nuclear movement. We've got frontline communities in Perth and Adelaide who are going to be ropeable when they realise what Morrison has signed them up to. 
the nuclear waste transports, the security, the borderline police state that you need to set in place where these things are fabricated and hosted. Every single activist and organiser in the country who could have used that $100 billion for housing affordability or to fight poverty or for clean energy projects, every single one of these people are our allies now as well as people right across the Asia-Pacific region whose lives are at risk because of this arms race that our government has initiated. The last thing I guess I want to say is this is a big campaign. This is going to take a while. This has got a long lead time. We don't have to panic. We have time to think. It's going to span everything from port blockades to the White House. But I always take heart to go to your question, Jacob, about hope from the fact that even the biggest campaigns are made up of small actions. Every conversation that we have, every banner that we paint or every story that we share online, every event we organise, it builds into a thing that's bigger than any of us. That's what builds the movement cascade that can create a political earthquake just a step at a time. None of us know how it's going to turn out, but I would so much rather be on our side of this argument than on the other. I'm going to leave the last word from someone much more eloquent than me. I think it's the most important thing that we can be doing in a movement-building phase. And um, there's this kind of gorgeous quote from Timothy Leary, where he says, who knows what you might learn from taking a chance on a conversation with a stranger? Everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. So trust your instincts, do the unexpected, and find the others. So on this call tonight, we found each other, and now we've got to go find the others. Thanks so much for putting together such an awesome event at very short notice. Thanks again, Scott, and always glad to be on your side and have you on mine, um, brother. And that concludes, uh, Scott's going to be in uh, building the movement um, breakout room with me, but I'll tell you how to get there in a minute. Um, just the last thing I want to mention, I feel it's my responsibility to point out again, that while tonight was primarily focused on, uh, let's call it the yellow cake submarine, and that's only part of the proposal. And we have things like former treasurer Joe Hockey, uh, former ambassador to the United States and currently an arms dealer at Bondi Partners, funny, funny, and has referred to AUKUS as the five eyes minus two. And um, I mentioned briefly earlier that intelligence is another key factor in the AUKUS, whatever it is, Pact Forever Partnership. Another key aspect is the increasing use of Australia by the US for troop deployments and weapons basing, etc. And we know there will be more troops at Robertson Barracks because work is being undertaken, air construction work at the, at the moment to um, cater for up to 6,000 troops. Dutton has spoken about um, storing all different kind or different kinds of ordinances here and US Defence Secretary Austin took it a step further saying that, and I'll quote, we will expand our access to and presence in Australia. Renegade activists have our ears to the ground, and we hope that if you weep and when you people hear things, you let us know, and we'll put all the news we find out on the website and um, through all our social media pages, as well as through the podcasts we're involved in, Uprise Radio with James and Mercedes and Jackson and the Friday Rave with me. Um, but again, as Boris said, there's been a raucous squawkus from the anti orcus caucus, so let's get to squawking a little louder. Focus on ideas for action and building the war anti-nuclear, anti-war, sorry, anti-nuclear movements. After tonight, 
Everyone is invited to follow up a session on the 4th of November to share developments and to keep working together. Good morning. You're on 3CR. My name's Jacob, um, and the time is currently 8am, and I hope you're having a wonderful morning. That was a segment from the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus, um, which was an online webinar about the new alliance between the UK, the US, and Australia. Um, and it featured some prominent speakers, including Jacob Gretsch, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Dimini Hawkins, Dave Sweeney, Talai Manguini, and Scott Ludlam. And as Jacob mentioned, there is further action um, being organised on the 4th of November. And if you're interested um, in the anti-Orcus, raucous, sorry, the, the raucous anti-Orcus caucus, um, you can head to www.renegadeactivists.org for some more information. Um, and I hope everyone's doing well. Up next, we've got a segment from Stick Together, which is about the anti-vax rally um, that happened outside the CFMMEU. Um, so this is a first-hand account, and this was recorded a couple of weeks ago. Here's an account of the situation from a union point of view from people who were there when the CFMEU officers were attacked. Better get on a bit of business now. Now, now there'll be no surprise there's been a little bit going on in the industry uh, since we last spoke to you. And, uh, yep. Been... We're going to try and run through that a little bit and explain a little bit what's going on. and um, What we know of. or yeah, What we know of and what's happened and where we've been involved and where we haven't. Most times we haven't, but anyway, not according to the press. But uh, <clears throat> as you know, with the COVID started about two years ago and, um, you know, never had it before. It was all, all, all new for everyone. And uh, they were taught about shutting, <coughs> excuse me, shutting the industry down. And uh, then the union, John Secker and the, and the hierarchy got involved down there with uh, with the, with uh, the government and the, the the medical officers and the industry, and uh, talked them out of shutting our industry down and uh, said that we could keep it going, but we had we had steps to follow. You know, the, the medical officer gave us all these chief medical officer gave us all these things we had to do to make sure the sites were safe and we could continue. So, as you know, Campbell, we had to go around and. And t- tell the blokes what we had to do, and a lot of unhappy soldiers when we first did that. If you remember right, if yeah, you go a lot back of blokes two years, one of the industry shut. One of the industry shut. They said, "No, no, it's, we're not working safe." We said, "Well, we wouldn't direct you if we if we're working safe." So, so anyway, we put these things in place, and we soldiered on, you know, and it went very well for for quite a long while. Um, lucky we didn't shut the industry down because we would have been out work for two years now. Yeah. So uh, that was a. So anyway, along the way. Two or three times they, they, they tried shutting it and the unions got involved and, and then they talked about... And then we, we went back down to uh, 25%, uh, yeah, only, only 25% on, on most jobs, barring the hospitals and the government, go, government jobs. jobs and all that. And that was all right. But anyway, so we got up... So that went all right. But um, towards the end, when I say the end, which is last week, uh, we were involved in most discussions and... Um, Despite what a lot of people, like that bloke, that loudmouth bloke that the, it was at, from, uh, at the front of our office, John Seckers never, sp- never, never spoke to um, Dan Andrews. Dan Andrews or, or met him. So, but despite, <coughs> despite all that, towards the end there was no discussions with the union. They started making calls themselves. And the last call they made was, oh, the boats can work on the sites, but they can't use their smoko sheds. Now, to say that created a few dramas is uh, an understatement, would you say, campaign? Yeah, well, for sure. Obviously, we and the issue with that, 
too. And the other thing too, and it leads into it, the last few calls, they haven't been talking to anyone in the industry because obviously the industry was working together. We've been trying to keep people, many people as we can working because this has been going for two years, you know, and there's no point having people out of work. Obviously, we've had a lot of jobs down to 25% and a lot of our members have been affected by that 25%. We've been putting things in place on the jobs like social distancing, heat. We've limited the risk in smoko sheds. Most jobs are staggered smoko times, A, B, C, rosters, sort of trying to get through it as well. And obviously the chief medical officer, there was an outbreak on one job. They keep saying 13% of cases have come from construction. Obviously we've been blowing about the smoko sheds and then they go and shut the smoko sheds so they think you can go eat and it's illegal to have a drink of water or have food on a building site. And then... Without consulting with us, they, they mandated the vaccine, which a lot of, like, we, the union, if you go through everything correspondence from the union, we have never been support or we've always been against mandatory Manda- mandated vaccine. We believe it is an individual's choice, whether they get vaccinated or not, but we have been but we're saying, encouraging people to get it. Go see your local doctor yeah, yeah. and get the proper information. And we have been trying and we've been arguing with people in government and all that, because like we 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 want we want rapid testing and stuff if if you can't get the vaccine and all this sort of stuff, but there's a lot of you know Inkalink's been looking at rapid testing. We're trying to get all this stuff through the industry, but obviously the mandate of vaccine, um, and people from the far far right have been saying spreading misinformation that we've endorsed it, we've done this, and spreading information on on sites. And if you went, if you were there, I was there um, on Monday. So if you were there on Monday, right, and obviously there's been a lot of agitating leading up to this. If you were there on Monday, um, John Secker went out to speak to, there was some, there was some members there, and no one's denying that. John Secker went out to speak to him. Our people and uh, our members wanted to hear from him. There's people in the crowd wouldn't let him speak. Every time he tried to say something, kept cutting him off. They're trying to split the union and trying to have a go at our union. That's why when they come, when he went to speak, they come there to listen to him speak, and they wouldn't let him speak. Instead, they tried to throw stuff. And there was a group of agitators in the crowd that were throwing stuff at the office. Like they were bring, there was frozen cans of Coke getting thrown at the office. Bottles, bricks. Bottles. Bricks. The police were letting them bring in slabs of beer into the crowd. So that's all you can see, all that. There was reports on, if you look on the Telegram app, people sending messages and all these apps which... We're sending messages out where high vis that aren't construction workers. The next day there was. Can I just chop in there, mate? Yeah. Just, just and, and one one thing about the high vis thing because this is all you hear about. It's a high vis thing, you know. Like they're they union members because they're wearing high vis. There was a truck that uh, they found down in Victoria Parade there, uh, like a van, a big big van, with the back open, handing out uh, high vis jumpers and high vis uh, vest uh, to anyone that wanted them. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I got to, you know, so that just, just, just understand that because it was a, it was a pretty well organised uh, uh, plan. All this, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, like I said, there was people. Like, if you look at the, like, the apps they're using, the Telegram apps and all this, they're actually agitating the crowd, and they're actually going on our Facebook page, pretending they're members, agitating our people, putting misinformation on the job. And yes, there is a. There is a lot of people I've got, like, in the community, I've got my best friends, a few of them don't want the vaccine. There's a lot of people, a lot of split in the community about the vaccine, and that's right across every field of the community. But where people are using it for their own political gains, 
is it's a joke, and that's what they've been doing. They're trying to divide people. In this time, it's hard. We need to come together as not just the union as a society, and let's get on and get back to where we can. We don't be. need it. We're up to we're up to um, everyone coming down to the uh, union office. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And then obviously we sat here. John went out and tried to speak to him. And if that's you, right. Yeah, yeah, you went out, and if you had a look at. If you have a look at the footage, there's a lot of footage about it. He did try and speak. Decker and him went out to fa- talk to the boys and say, let's let's have a chat. And then it sort of kicked off from there. And then the crowd kept getting more agitated with the people inside the crowd agitating it. And then it and then it blew up. There's pretty serious hostilities going on there at one point. It's a pretty serious thing, but it got pretty untidy. And and um, and then the, 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 even to say that John went out again and so had one bloke up standing up there. You probably saw him if you've seen the film in a black t-shirt with a spruker on someone's shoulders i'll let you tell me about that bloke that bloke is an absolute is actually a uh, a boss so not even a union member so look it got horrific and they were hurling they it was all organized there was bricks coming through the, the broken glass bricks full uh bottles of coke um there, there, was, there was bottles of Cans. beer there was there was blokes with uh, a few blokes got some bad head injuries uh just you know because it came through the window and couldn't even see it coming uh, and all that, but uh, and th- and then it and then it steamrolled from there. But look, it's uh, as far as what happens after that. Look, we'll we'll have to put our hands up and say there, there might have been twenty, thirty percent. I don't know of our yeah. members there. Yeah, there's some agitators. And, and plus the rest are agitators. But but as it moved on and moved on, I don't think there was too many of our members. In fact, if if any, and and I've got to say the union is disgusted in what some of the things that have happened since then. I mean, they they moved on. They uh, smash people's cars. They uh, let, let, let me let, let's sort of go through what which day it got worse. They went on the freeway the first day. They're on the freeway on stopping the car, on the west gate, jumping people's cars, uh, stopping people's cars. Um, then uh, the, the next day, what happened? Uh, the the next, biggest one was the getting to the shrine of remembrance. Well, the shrine's probably the lowest thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, uh, you know, that that's been built for rec- recognition of the people who've lost their lives to this great country, and you've got these lunatics up there pissing on it, drinking on it, and all that. It's just an absolute disgrace. Yeah, I remember the last time I was there, I took uh, some of the um, tunnel rats on the Vietnam War, War helped them up. Uh, path to get there because a few of them lost limbs and all that and the next time I'm, I see it I've got those people pissing and, and throwing cans at police and all that they're, it's just an absolute disgrace and if you think the see from you's got nothing to do with that you're kidding yourself and they are some of the messaging they're playing to all sides of the crowd just whatever they can they're playing to every side of the crowd like there's blokes there marching with them the next day claiming oh we want our industry open they're the reason the industry got shut yeah, well, we've broke our balls for two years keeping the industry open, and now, because of this, it's been shut. Now, let me tell you, I don't think it'll be open in two weeks. I no. don't think. You've got 300, like the secretary's coming out public said, you've got 300,000 construction workers in housing, domestic, everything, that are now out of work for the next two, and like you said, it could be longer. And... You know, it's just an absolute joke. And, and what shits me is about every time they see the, the they say the fruros, the tradies, and all that. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm tipping. And if there wasn't any of our blokes doing that, you know, there'll be um, repercussions. Well, we can yeah, condemn any actions like that. Absolutely condemn. And we understand any people that. are frustrated. We we are all frustrated ourselves. We're frustrated with our our people that have um. You know, we've some of the chief medical officers' decisions around smokers and mandating the vaccines and all that. 
we are we have been born with them. We're one of the only organisations that have been born with them. But at the end of the day, we're doing our best, and it's don't let people spread misinformation amongst us. If you got any, if you're a union member, and you get sacked or stood down from COVID, the union has been clear on this and will be clear. And I've seen messages go out to everyone. If you have been sacked because you do not want the vaccine, call the union and we will look after your... We are going to try and fight it to the best of our abilities and use all our legal resources, but that's where we're at at the moment. We have said we will defend your job, and we will. Right. Worst thing I've seen in 50 years. Yeah. but Worst thing I've seen. We'll get through it. We'll get through it. So there's no point. But like I said, come, you know, like I said, we are going to represent you no matter... If you're pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, or if you don't want the vaccine, we are going to represent you. If you're a union member, a financial union member, there's people saying, I'm not going to pay my union fees. Well, they're not even... A lot of them, we've checked a few of them, they're not even members. So ah, that's right. I we mean, had people at the front of the office on doing interviews saying, oh, I'm not going to pay my union... They're from housing. They're not even from our world. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So ah. they're kidding themselves, like I said. We will get through this and, you know, we'll be coming out the other side like we have before, stronger than ever. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's a pretty sad place at the moment. And, uh, look, we'll get on top of all this. Don't worry, meetings have been held today. There's been meetings held every day. So we'll see what happens and um, how, how we work our way through this. But uh, as you said, uh, Campo, it's just about many of it, all our members sticking together, a bit of solidarity, and uh, we've got to see, you know, get through this. And like the public, we have to re-establish, you know, ourselves to the public. I mean, yeah. look, if the pub, if the public think we had anything to do with any of that, you're kidding yourselves. I mean, it's we are, we've, yeah, that you might get different ideas of us, but I mean, we're pretty hard, I and mean, we rally hard for for what we want, but we never, we never ever, ever, you know, sort of take it out in the public and nothing like that. So, for what you've seen, we've got no. We've not no involvement in any of this happen, you know, apart from trying to defend ourselves, you know. Exactly. Stick together. Yeah. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Good morning. So that was a report from Stick Together about the anti-vax rally on the 20th of September that happened outside the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union. Um, and if you liked that, you can catch up with Campo and Gorilla, um, who are speaking there from the Concrete Gang program, which happens every Sunday on 3CR at 9.30. Um, and up next, we've got a very exciting interview. Um, we're speaking to Cody Smith, who is an intersex activist on Gunnawal country um, with lived experience of medical violence. Um, and they're also the senior project officer at the International Human, sorry, the Intersex Human Rights Australia. Um, and we're going to be speaking to them about the Victorian government's vision called I Am Equal, which details the government's commitment to increasing awareness of innate variations of sex characteristics, supporting intersex health and wellbeing services, and legislating for improved healthcare for intersex children, including introducing a prohibition on deferrable medical interventions uh, without personal consent. So, Cody, welcome to the program. Pleased to be here. How are you today? I am going well. How are you, Cody? Ah, Chipper, a little bit early for me, but that's okay. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, So, for our audiences that aren't familiar, could you briefly describe what intersex means? 
So the definition that we use at Intersex Human Rights Australia uh, is intersex people have innate sex characteristics that don't fit medical and social norms for female or male bodies. And that creates risks or experiences of stigma, discrimination and harm. One of the most important things you need to understand about intersex is that it's an umbrella term that talks about 40 different um, like um, diagnoses which represent um, sort of natural bodily diversity. And so when we're talking about intersex people as a population, intersex people have very little in common, but we have a lot of um, common experiences. So it's those experiences of stigma and discrimination and harm that intersex activism seeks to address. I see. And what kinds of um, medical interventions are intersex people subjected to? So because we're talking about sex characteristics, we're talking about medical interventions that affect sex characteristics. So people may be born with uh, ambiguous genitalia uh, or um, uh, genitals that have um, characteristics that are different from what people normally expect. And so there's a lot of corrective surgery that can happen to that, which causes nerve damage and um, harm and uh, long-term medical problems. Another common thing is um, a a procedure called a gonadectomy. So uh, there's a fear that when someone has um, atypical gonads that they represent uh, a substantial cancer risk where this isn't actually de- uh, demonstrated or proven. Uh, the thing is that when you remove um, gonads for the gonadectomy, uh, you're not only coercively sterilizing um, a person and removing any possibility that they'll be able to have children in the future, but um, you'll also uh, end up forcing them onto hormone replacement therapy for the rest of their lives. So we're talking about uh, things that have very, very significant consequences uh, throughout the rest of your life. And the upshot of that is that uh, we think that intersex people should be in control of their destiny. They should be the ones who make the call as to whether or not they uh, want or need these surgeries. I couldn't agree more, and and you mentioned a lot about some of the physical uh, consequences of those interventions, but I can imagine that they would also cause a lot of mental trauma too throughout an intersex person's life. Yeah, well, um, because we're talking about populations that are, uh, you know, for each diagnosis you may be one in a thousand or one in two thousand or one in a few hundred, when you take into consideration the full breadth of intersex definition, well, we tend to think of it in terms of about being 1% to 2% of the population. But we're talking about quite rare medical cases that get treated with a lot of medical curiosity. So there's also a history there of being photographed and being exposed to doctors. And um, that that's all these sorts of experiences uh, can be quite traumatic, especially if you're going in and out of hospital as a young kid. It makes it hard to complete your schooling. Um, a lot of... Um, in, uh, some intersex people experience um, a lot of um, difficulties uh, with bullying at school because um, they don't develop it in the same way that their peers do. So we're talking about uh, like a very, very broad range of um, like, um, difficult experiences. And ultimately, what, uh, what the goal of the movement is, is to reduce harm. Mm, of course. And um, I know that recently in July, the, the Victorian government released their I Am Equal vision, um, which is their commitment uh, for improving the lives of, of intersex people. And I think it's something that's been quite underreported. Um, and I know that Intersex Human Rights Australia 
have been campaigning for this for a while. So do you want to tell us a bit about um, the campaign that has gone into changing these laws, not only in Victoria, but also across Australia? So uh, Intersex Human Rights Australia first started out as Organisation Intersex International Australia, or OII Australia. Um, I believe they first incorporated in 2010. But the intersex rights movement uh, largely goes back uh, to the 1990s. So in 1993, uh, uh, ISNA was um, founded. I can't quite remember what ISNA stands for. I think it's the Intersex Society of North America. Mm. And um, coming up later on this month, on October 26th, is Intersex Awareness Day, which takes place uh, on the anniversary of the protests of a pediatrics conference in Boston. So the movement has its roots um, in the 90s, but in Australia, I guess, uh, goes back to that uh, founding of OII Australia, um, which eventually turned to ERA uh, in 2010. Um, so that's a little bit of a In terms of... Um, so the fact that, you know, this sort of campaigning has been happening for 11 years and we still don't have a jurisdiction in Australia that has produced legislation... Uh, to protect intersex people uh, really is a striking indictment of sort of like um, this whole idea that um, um, that we've, we've got this uh, huge forward momentum on LGBTIQ politics because whereas we've made really good progress on some issues, uh, intersex issues tend to get sidelined and misunderstood and misrepresented and ignored, uh, which is really unfortunate. So... Get, getting that commitment to action uh, from the Victorian government uh, is really, really promising. We've had um, a lot of good process in the ACT and Tasmania as well. Um, but the the upshot of it is that um, we need uh, nationally consistent guidelines to ensure that uh, no matter where you're born in Australia, if you're born intersex, that your your right to bodily autonomy is protected until you can make your own decisions. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of the time people tend to understand the other components of the, the LGBT acronym, like lesbian, gay, bi, and, and intersex seems to always be one that's sidelined. Um, so it is it is promising that the, uh, the Victorian government is doing something about this. Um, but I think, as you said before, it, it should be um, nationally consistent. Um, so do you want to tell us a bit about what the, the Victorian government sets out to achieve and, and how that aligns with um, the outcomes that you hope for? Mm. Uh, I think that... So when we talk about prohibition, um, I, I think that people tend to get a little bit nervous um, as though we're trying to take options away from people. And what we're actually uh, focused on is this idea of harm reduction, of um, um, putting... Uh, uh, giving people the opportunity to make the, uh, the best possible decisions for themselves. Um, so the the sorts of legislative models that we're looking at uh, aren't, aren't trying to take rights away from anyone, but are instead focused on how we can delay um, procedures, uh, how we can um, sort of... Um, uh, how we can prevent um, unevidenced procedures from happening and um, basically providing a mechanism to ensure that where procedures do take place, that there are uh, records, that it's, um, that um, that everything about the circumstances are understood um, uh, fairly 
so that if if um, if it becomes understood that this was um, violence uh, later on down the line, that there's potentially um, recourse for the individual who's been harmed. So we're very, very focused on harm reduction. Um, and while it's very, very hard to get into the specifics, um, one of the models we're looking at uh, is, is basically a mechanism where there's um, oversight on intersex procedures. So uh, that oversight would be would provide protection. Hmm, I see. Um, and so we've we've talked a bit about harm reduction. Can you tell us? I'm sure there's there's plenty of these. Can you tell us a bit about some of the other changes that Intersex Human Rights Australia is campaigning for to ensure that there's equality for all intersex people? So a few years ago, uh, there was a uh, a summit of intersex people from right across Australia, all different organisations, all different backgrounds, all different diagnoses. And we came together in Darlington, Sydney, to uh, like explore what those common experiences were, uh, how we've been harmed uh, and discriminated against on the basis of being born into sex. And we came up with a list of goals for the movement, and that became known as the Darlington Statement. So the Darlington Statement can be found on darlington.org.au forward slash statement. And that is really sort of your deep dive into all the intersex issues that we face. So I think one of the things is that we really put forward this idea that um, intersex activism is very, very focused on medical violence, but it's also about rights in the workplace. It's um, about rights in education. Like if you think about... um, you know, when boys and girls learn about their bodies uh, at age 12, a lot of intersex people don't find out they're intersex until much later on in life. And uh, there shouldn't be anything so complicated or shameful about being born intersex that we shouldn't be teaching intersex children about their own bodies in the same environment. And in fact, if we start sort of like... um, uh, having these conversations earlier on in life, then what we're doing is we're promoting understanding of bodily diversity and we're creating a culture that is kinder to intersex bodies. So uh, education is a big one for us. Uh, genetic discrimination is a substantial issue. Um, <clears throat> as we sort of get these sort of reproductive technologies that are very, very uh, focused on genetic screening and genetic selection, what we find is, unfortunately, that there are a lot of intersex traits that are flipped against. And there's nothing that should stop an intersex person from living a happy, healthy life. Like I said, we're talking about bodily difference. We're not talking about illness. We're not talking about disease. We're not talking about um, uh, anything other than like a perfectly healthy body that's just a little bit different from what people expect. So to select against that... Um, you know, it is a form of discrimination in itself. Um, the idea of intersex people not even being given the chance to live is quite a distressing one. Mm, absolutely. All such important causes. And I think mm. um, your point there about just normalising it from a young age is um, is so important. Um, well, thank you so much, Cody, for joining us today. Where can we uh, sorry, find and support Intersex Human Rights Australia so Intersex Human Rights Australia has its own website, uh, at ihra.org.au. You'll find a, a whole bunch of um, resources on there about um, 
various different aspects of um, what it means to live as an intersex person in Australia. I've also mentioned the Darlington uh, statement. The Darlington statement is a really good starting point for anyone who's interested in becoming an ally to the intersex community, because not only does it give you that base, baseline 101 on intersex issues, but it gives you an opportunity to affirm the statement uh, as a human rights ally and um, sort of like use your name to support our cause. So uh, darlington.org.au forward slash statement and era.org.au if you want to learn more. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cody. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully we've all learned something about intersex today. Yes, I'm sure. Um, So that was Cody Smith there from Intersex Human Rights Australia. They are the Senior Project Officer. Um, And we will be right back after this. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is back for 2021. This year's digital festival invites you to take a journey with a series of thought-provoking films, documentaries and shorts. EFA 21 invites you to explore the world and connect with environmental issues beyond the headlines. Take a journey into the deeper seas, up awe-inspiring mountains and into the lives of those fighting to save our planet. Running from October 14 to November 14, visit effa.org.au for more. The Environmental Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. That's all we have time for on the program today. Thanks for joining us. Tune in tomorrow morning at 7am for Tuesday Breakfast. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.